Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a really tough devotion. This is devotion 777, 777. And with a name like that, a number like that, you know, I'm not one for numerology, but you'd think that it'd be really cool. The bad news is this is the most horrifying text in the most horrifying book of the Bible. Go figure. That is the text we've arrived at for devotion 777. Judges chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months. Then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had a servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she, uh, so she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the nights there. So this was customary, and it was an expectation. When a stranger came to your house, you were expected to show hospitality, and that feasting and drinking can go on for days. Moreover, if you're a guest at someone's house and they're providing hospitality to you, you are obligated to receive it. That's something that's customary even in, uh, in parts of the world today. Uh, my, my first church that I served at, I was just you know a young buck youth pastor, and I was following my lead pastor around. We went door to door in another country, sharing the gospel to help launch a church plant. And everywhere we went, man, they fed us. Around house number like 15 or 16, I was stuffed. And my lead pastor looked over at me and was like, like, Jesse, you've got to eat this. I cannot eat anymore. And I was like, okay. So this is a, this is a custom that still uh, is observed today. But what was funny, it's, it's kind of like this, uh, imagine an Airbnb scenario where uh, you have to stay when the host asks you to. <laughs> you can't just go. It's expected uh, that you would stay. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, have something to eat, keep up your strength, and then you can go. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, please agree to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed and spent the night there again. Verse 8, he got up early in the morning of the fifth day, to leave, but the girl's father said to him, please keep your strength. So they waited until late afternoon and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See, the day is almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early uh, tomorrow for your journey and go home. All right? He's actually only six miles from uh, from Jerusalem at this point, but it's, it's he's going to get there late. But the man was unwilling to spend the night. He got up, departed, and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. The man had his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant uh, said to his master, please, why not let us stop at this Jebusite city and spend the night here? Okay, so Jebus is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is not yet Jerusalem as we know it. It would not be until the next era, as the era of the judges gives way to the monarchical era, and Saul is the first king, and then uh, David is the second king, and then David's son Solomon builds the temple, okay, and then worship is established in Jerusalem. We've seen in the book of Judges that Shiloh seemed to be a headquarters for worship, but we don't yet have Jerusalem as we know Jerusalem. It's not even really called Jerusalem in this text. It's called Jebus, and it seems to be overrun by Jebusites. That's a Gentile nation. They were not friendly to the Israelites. 
Now, what's ironic about this is that even though this man is wary of staying in a city full of Jebusites, the unspeakable will happen in a city full of Israelites. And that's coming up. But his master replied to him, We will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move on to Gibeah. Come on, he said. Let's try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on their journey, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. So to contextually fully understand this, imagine an alternate version of Airbnb once again, where you just put out the fact that you have to stay somewhere, and then it's expected that hosts would then compete with each other to be the one to host you, only they also have to feed you. But he's going to try to sweeten the deal, so to speak. In the evening, an old man came in from his work in the field. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was residing in Gibeah, where the people were Benjaminites. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going, and where do you come from? He answered him, We're traveling from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote hill country of Ephraim, where I am from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his home. So remember, when he says the house of the Lord... The temple doesn't exist yet. One commentator speculated that uh, when you take the word my house in Hebrew and you add one letter onto the end of it, it becomes the house of the Lord. And it could be that a, a scribe mistranslated this. Either way, what he's trying to project here is that I'm not a threat. I'm, I'm a good guy. Um, right? I'm, I, I mean no harm. No one's taking me into his. No, no one's taking me into his home. It's expected that they would show me hospitality, and this is like the polar opposite of what I experienced earlier. I had a host that wouldn't let me go, and now no one will take me in. And here's verse 19. Here's where he kind of sweetens the deal for anyone who would take him in. Although there's straw and feed for the donkeys, and I have bread and wine for me, my concubine, and the servant with us, there's nothing we lack. Okay, so like, please, Airbnb hosts, uh, come pick me because I, you don't even have to provide me. With the K-cups for the Keurig, I've got my own K-cups. I've got everything that I need. You don't need to provide me anything. Welcome, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need, only don't spend the night in the square. Okay, that's a little bit ominous and with shockingly good reason. So we brought him to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. It's shocking, right? And it's also similar to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've read the book of Genesis, chapters 18 and 19, you may have, you may have thought, oh, wait a minute, I thought this was in Genesis. I, I, I thought this was Sodom and Gomorrah. What city are they in again? This is No, it's... It is strikingly similar already to the story of Lot, where the angels come to his house in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's about to be starkly parallel to the account of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is another nearly identical incident, only it has a, a different brand of horror at its ending. The owner of the house went out and said to them, Please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. All right, so if you were to stop in verse 21, everybody's happy. If you stop in verse 22, 
It's shocking. There is this mob of men who are beating on the door. That's that's the word that's that's used right here in verse 22. And what they are demanding is that they have the ability to in uh, mass, basically just commit an act of homosexual gang rape. And then in verse 23, the owner of the house goes out to defend his house guest. Okay, like this guy is my guest. I'm responsible for his safety. It's an outrage that you would do this. Okay, but then comes verse 24. He rightly calls it an outrage that this mob of men would come in and rape his male house guest. But then what he proposes is just as horrific, if not more so. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. So he has offered them his own daughter and his guest's concubine. Good grief. This is, this is the polar opposite of what men should do. And then the, the words that, that the old man, the host, says, continue in verse 24, regarding his own daughter and his house guest's concubine, he says to this, this lust-filled crowd, abuse them and do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. So this is, if you want to talk about actual misogyny, this is actual misogyny right here. And it's, it's gut-wrenching, but it's, it's not isolated in the book of Judges. We've seen it in Cicero. We've seen it in Barak. We see it in this man. Women suffer when men don't live up to what God has called us to be. This is the polar opposite of what I posit as the prime axiom of masculinity, self-sacrifice like that of Jesus. When men push women into harm's way, they're doing the opposite of what they ought to do. This is what's wrong with a secular pushback against the feminist agenda. And it, you'd think that I would like this one aspect of this particular secular movement, that it's actually pro-life. Here's what's happening. There is a secular push for men to have the same rights as women when it comes to reproduction. If a woman wants to, uh, no longer wants to have the baby that's in her, she can pay someone and she can have that baby murdered. And, uh, but what they object to is the idea that if a man does not want to become a father, um, he has no rights, his wages are garnished, and they view this as unfair. It, there's also a complaint within this secular kind of like counter movement to the feminist movement that decries the disproportionate number of men who die in service to their country, looking at the gravestones in Arlington National Cemetery and complaining that they're all men and pouting about the idea that we as men are just expendable and we're born to die. And here's what that completely misses. Those men died so that their wives and daughters would live and they would not have it any other way. If you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, ask them. Men sacrifice ourselves willingly, especially for the good of women. Husbands are called in the biblical model to give ourselves up for our wives, to do for our wives what Christ did for the church, and that is that he went to the cross. So this book of Judges, 
describes an era where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. It is the relativist mecca that modern culture is demanding. It is an archetype. It's not isolated. It is a pattern that has repeated. Just ask the Greeks, ask Sodom and Gomorrah, ask the culture before God flooded the earth, ask the people of Canaan, even before the events of the book of Joshua. We are not progressive. We are actually just repeating a playbook that leads to such a depraved culture as this. But as horrible as this is, the text gets even worse. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. So remember what happens here in verse 25, because in our next devotion, you're going to see this man giving an account before this assembled army of Israel, and he's going to leave this part out. He's going to conveniently omit the fact uh, that he is the one who seized his own concubine, to whom he was married, evidently, according to the text, and, and, and he's going to take her outside to them. So... At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. When her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. This is just God wrenching because my interpretation of this gobsmackingly bleak text is that she died, that she was raped to death. And she tried to make her way back and she's just reaching out for the threshold of the door. And this is where she dies. You know, her, he ref, he's referred to as her master here. He's referred to as her husband elsewhere. You can see this is, this is not God's design at all for marriage. The, this, he's a Levite. He ought not to have had a concubine in the first place. He should have stayed with his father-in-law in the first place. Uh, this massive crowd should not have been demanding to rape him or anybody in the first place. And uh, now she has been assaulted and she dies of her wounds, reaching out to him or to her host for help. And then the, first, the moment that he sees what I believe is her dead body, in verse 28, he's so cold. He says, get up, he told her, let's go. But there was no response. Um, it could be that she was still alive, but I think that she died on the threshold and there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And so I believe that he rides home with her dead body on his donkey. And then believe it or not, it's about to get horrifying again. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine, cut her into 12 pieces limb by limb, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. This is never prescribed. This was never asked for by God. This is just what this man did. And there's a reason for it, as horrifying as it is, and he should not have done it. None of this should have happened. But it does evoke 
another story in which an animal was cut into 12 pieces and then sent out to the tribes of Israel. And the understanding was, if you don't respond to this plea for help, to come and help me militarily, then a curse is upon you. This man does something similar, but he does it with the body of his concubine to whom he was wed. So this is a way of rallying the army, but he did it in a Hannibal Lecter sick way. Okay, the bleakness has finally come to an end as of the penultimate verse of this chapter. And you're going to see something happen in the next chapter that none of the judges was able to actually do. This man has cut his concubine into pieces to rally troops. And the response to this shocking message does actually have some parallels for our culture today. Okay, so hopefully I can give you just a tiny bit of good news. Verse 30, everyone who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, and speak up. So it definitely, you know, his, his, act, of, uh, his act of mutilation did what he intended it to do, as darkly as that is, it did get people talking. They're like, this hasn't happened before. We haven't seen this. All right, everybody think about this. Talk about this and speak up. It's, it's as though the, you know, the, the, the people who are supposed to be running the asylum are finally going to try to take it back from the inmates. And they've hit, their, they've hit their threshold. They've been desensitized to a lot. But this shocking ordeal was enough to jar them into action. And then in the next chapter, uh, they're actually going to rally an army. And this man's going to be at the center of it. Uh, you know, his, uh, his actions, as, as reprehensible as they are all throughout this text, at the very least do lead to some pushback. I think that in our culture today, we're seeing glimpses of that pushback. I'm not just talking about pushback within the secular, uh, within the secular world against the advance of third wave feminism or for the pro-life cause. I, I even see it happening, uh, against pornography. You know, you're in bad shape when even secular people, even atheists are saying, okay, time out. Maybe pornography is bad. So we're at verse 30 in that regard. This is not an isolated story. This is the way that cultures go when they forsake the truth of God for a lie. When they think that they're wise, but they become fools. They become sexually licentious. Sexual crimes increase. Rape increases. This kind of stuff increases. It always has. It happened before the flood. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened here in the book of Judges. It has always happened in every culture that abandons the truth of God, suppresses the truth of God, tries to deny the fact that his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen from everything that he's made, pretending like we're not without excuse. And this can happen again. We're not this bad just yet. And the only thing that stops this from happening is either an outpouring of God's wrath before it gets that bad, or what we're praying for at the Redemption Church, revival. Let's pray for revival. Pray that today's children would be protected from sexual crimes like this. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bring people to repentance. 
pray that God would have mercy on our sinful culture. He is well within his rights. It is absolutely his prerogative to pour out whatever discipline or wrath he will. But we are going to ask instead, and this can be hard to ask for, because you probably kind of want the bad guys to get their comeuppance until you realize that in, in, in your own way, you're the bad guy too. Pray that God shows mercy. Pray that God brings revival. Pray that God pardons our sin and brings us from darkness to light. Would you pray right now and ask God to show mercy to our nation, to our people, to our world?